the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into our three of our daily three-hour tour. It's always a privilege. It's never over a good thing, unfortunately, but it's always a privilege and honor to welcome to the show and welcome back uh, consumer and finance expert, reporter and columnist Erica Jay Sandberg. She is the best, uh, for my money, the best reporter on the goings-on in San Francisco that there is, kind of doing the old kind of mean streets reporting that uh, has fallen away from journalism, doing great work. You can catch up with her and see all her work at her website, ericasandberg.com. She spells her last name S-A-N-D-B-E-R-G. She's also a contributor to the Manhattan Institute City Journal. Erica, welcome back, and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I'm so happy to have to be here and to have such a great introduction. Thank oh, well, you. you're welcome. Well-earned, well-deserved. Um, but not good times. You know, San Francisco uh, used to be known for so many beautiful things. You can take a beautiful beautiful thing and ruin it, can't you? We're watching this uh, in live time. Tell, tell us what we should know about the rising tide of crime in San Francisco. Well, you kind of nailed it. It's a rising tide of crime. Um, we have let the uh, the progressive movement and the DA, who's a leader in it, to take over, to completely decimate our way of life, which is a beautiful way of life. San Francisco is a stunning city. It's my hometown. Red's my child here. Um, it's worth fighting for. But I'll tell you one thing. We have a major fight ahead. Thankfully, there's a lot of people who are fighting, but crime is off the charts. But things are changing. We had a major, we had a major statement that was made by Mayor London Green. Yeah, I wanted to ask yeah. you about that. Yeah, a year ago, she was talking about defunding the police and taking 125 million bucks out of their budget. Today was a little different, wasn't it? It was yesterday, and it was very different. Yeah, um, it was basically a I am fed up with this. It will change. We are not going to accept the crime, the squalor, the vagrancy, the feelings of fear anymore. It's done. So it's interesting, though. We're we're trying to figure out what motivated that statement because it's been happening for a while. This isn't overnight. This isn't new. And um, I actually just wrote a story for City Journal. It's going to be out on Friday about it. Um, But essentially, it's a, a couple of factors. It's humiliation. The... It has gone, it has, and it's become so bad that now there is no pretending it doesn't exist. Conventions have canceled. Tourists aren't coming here anymore. Businesses are closing. It, our downtown area is a ghost town. It has it, it an impossible to pretend situation. So after some very, very big, major, horrific a large retail theft that happened in, in Union Square. It, it, it is no longer something that anybody can ignore, including the mayor. So if she wants to keep power, she's going to have to make a big, big change. 
I wanted to do two things, if I could, to illustrate for our audience some of what you guys have to grapple with in San Francisco. The story of Troy McAllister. Uh, do you want me to do it, or do you remember it well enough to do it yourself? You wrote about it a little while ago, so I won't hold you to it if you want me to do it real quick. <laughs> yeah, he's just one of the many criminals who yeah. was allowed to roam free. Um, and I believe Troy McAllister was the man who uh, got into his car while high yep. and said on New Year's Day, yep. New Year's Eve Day, New Year's Eve Day, mm-hmm. And killed two women. Yep. Um, uh, uh, Hannah Ab- Abbey. Hannah? Wait. Yeah, ha- ha- Hanako, I think. Hanako right. Abbey and Elizabeth right. Platt. Right, right. Correct, correct. Now, he was a career criminal. Eight prior felony convictions. Yeah. 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 Very dangerous. Facing man. a life Very sentence. Trouble. <laughs> yeah. Pardon me? Facing a life sentence. Absolutely. Yeah. And he was out and about and allowed to do what he did that resulted in the murder of two women. Yeah. It is unconscionable. that I know that um, Hannah's family is suing the city of San Francisco because of this. So things are it, – it's it really reached this intense point right now. Um, yeah, that was a really, really bad um, situation that we're still reeling from. Well, every it seems like every major city is is and and that's you know the 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 fact pattern is a little bit different, but it's the same ending and the same beginning that we saw with Waukesha uh, in 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 uh, uh, Waukesha uh, in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Uh, these people had no business being on the streets. They were there only by dint of prosecutors caring more about the criminals than the community. Is that an unfair statement? Oh, it's a totally fair statement. Um, it is. This is very kind of philosophical and esoteric about what these, what the the people who are running the show, the supervisors and city department, what they have in mind. Um, it is. It is philosophical. They don't care about the actual result on the street, the net result. They care about their ideas for a better society. And the two, the two have very. They have. They don't really meet in the middle. So it it's just kind of this fascinating. Thing that's happening um they have no, no sense of reality they have no caring for the community the people the supervisors uh, and i'm going to leave them and there. they're smug about it they're smug i've seen some of them interviewed and so they take smug. no responsibility for any of this oh Seth, they are the epitome of smug yeah uh, and we know we know better than you do we've got we we're creating a better a, a better society. Oh, we're going to get cars off the road, which completely cracks me up. I'm like, they call it car violence or vehicle violence. Yeah. Um, right. As opposed to somebody getting in his car, inebriated, speeding, and then driving recklessly enough to kill somebody. What? what that's the car's fault? What, what planet are you on? But that's what we're, that's what. And the reason that they're doing it is because their their impetus is to have a car-free city. <laughs> they want it to be some sort of 1400 uh, uh, village from in uh, in France. Something like this. What are you talking about? I, I'd go <laughs> along with it if they used the same, if they had the same criminal code France did back then. <laughs> I'd, I'd almost go along with it, but they won't. Erica, the the maddening thing here, to me at least, sitting here in Phoenix and and just from afar, 
the maddening thing is all of this was unnecessary. All of this was preventable. It's not as if you, it's not as if Heather McDonald and Jim Wilson and hundreds of other writers, Ed DeLotter, a lot of people writing on how how policing works uh, and how crime can be arrested in major cities or at least reduced. It's not as if it's not as if this was this was unknown to people. It's not as if this is a new science, but it does seem like the prosecutors and the mayors in a lot of these cities and L.A. is as much as San Francisco. They are playing with a new science, aren't they? They are disbanding everything we have come to learn about safety, community and policing. They have. And as I say, and a lot of it really is because they don't have a realistic perspective on what a society can and should be. Um, it is, it, I, I feel like they, they've all been spending way too much time in some backroom college classroom without any real world experience about how commerce works and how, how a community can function. It is so unrealistic and bizarre. And it's it a world that nobody wants to live in. People do want rules. People do want consistency. They do want to be able to walk out their door without stepping over somebody because they're passed out. Um, they don't want needles in their gutters, their bays, their oceans. Um, they, don't, they don't want a free-for-all. People want good, solid, straightforward rules that are fair and consistent. It's, it's really what everybody, most people want. Um, so it's how we're going to get there. Uh, we're fighting, and I believe that we're going to win. I believe it's going to be a heck of a fight. But, but with, with what happened with Mayor Priest just yesterday, she knows the pressure's on. She knows that conventions have, have canceled, very lucrative conventions that add to the city coffer. You don't have that money, you can't function. Yeah. So Right, so at this stage... She's seeing the effect of extraordinarily bad policy. Now, where's her head? I don't know. We're not friends, so I don't know <laughs> exactly what's happening. But I do know is um, the reputation of San Francisco has been deeply, deeply damaged, and it needs to be repaired. She got a lot of support from the loudest of voices a little over a year ago when she was talking about defunding and reimagining policing. Will she get a lot of support now for the turn of mind because people have woken up so quickly to what that led to? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, she was. She was. It was not a popular decision when she went along with the whole defund the police. Oh, okay. And, and did actually, yeah, and did actually um, uh, go into those into that funds and, and um, we're down, I think, three or four hundred officers yeah. from where we should. Yeah. So, in a uh, city yeah, of like what two thousand, right? I mean, that that's a huge oh, bite. No. Yeah, we have a we have approximately um, oh, a residents. I mean, we have about eight hundred eight hundred thousand residents. Yeah, no, right. but I meant to, but, like two thousand police, though. I think something. Oh, right, right, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's a yeah. major blow. Yeah, right. And so there, so the police that we do have who are on foot patrol and in squad cars, they're stretched yeah. thin. Yep. And um, they're, so they're really feeling the effect. But as they say, she's reversed course. She said that she's going to add more police to the force. She's going to put more cash into it. There's, so we shall see. These are the words. It does start with words. Yep. So we'll see if actions do follow. Um, if, if they do, she'll get, she'll get a lot of support. 
from the community, which is exactly what she wants. You bet. So, right. So if she wants to vote, that's how she's going to get them. Well, we'll stay in touch with you and see how is it, how it unfolds. I really appreciate all your insights, your writing, your reporting, and your willingness to talk about it with us, Erica. We really do appreciate it very much. Totally my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me on. As always. I really, really appreciate it. You betcha, and if you see anything that we should uh, be alert to, don't uh, hesitate to reach out. Erica Sandberg, you can get, go to her website for more, ericasandberg.com. Erica is E-R-I-C-A, Sandberg is S-A-N-D-B-E-R-G. You want to understand the goings-on of crime in San Francisco, you read Erica Sandberg. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Chris, don't you think my music is a little more get-you-going than your music? Don't Yeah. <laughs> the heavy well, I mean, you I mean, that gets you going. That's real. That's drive. That's cowbell. I played one song. And, and, and you're giving me mbop. I, I mean, I didn't. <laughs> you said the Han- you said Hanson. I did. That was just in my genre. Era. Yeah. Genre. Uh, Tim, uh, I saw your name on the board calling in and calling back from yesterday. I, I was going to go right to you. If you call back, I will. I did want to hear from you, our teacher, Tim. Um, please, uh, please do call back. But I also wanted to draw a uh, complete the circle on a story we did. Uh, must have been about a week and a half or two weeks ago with uh, Dr. Jasser, who uh, who was warning us about this piece of legislation uh, being um, being uh, sponsored and touted by uh, Ilan Omar, it was a uh, a piece of legislation to take on Islamophobia. Uh, that that's that's a, exactly uh, what what this act was that the House of Representatives passed yesterday. Legislation to combat Islamophobia. Blessedly, uh, it will not be entertained in the Senate. Blessedly, um, it is. Uh, it received not a single Republican vote. Unblessedly, the Democratic Party is in the grips of this. Andy McCarthy writes, it's worth reiterating that Islamophobia is not an authentic condition. It is demagoguery conjured up by the Muslim Brotherhood to discourage examination of Sharia supremacism, a construction within Islam, supported by centuries of scholarship that seeks to implement and spread Sharia, Islam's legal and societal system, by any means available. There are many constructions of it. Sharia supremacism, often referred to as radical Islam, is mainstream in many parts of the world, too many, including in some Muslim-majority areas of the Middle East. It is rejected by most Muslims in the West, though it has more influence than it should because our political class keeps paying lip service to it. It gives the time of day to Islamist organizations, many of which have ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. The purpose of the Islamophobia artifice is to intimidate analysts and commentators into ignoring the straight line from bellicose verses in Muslim scripture to Sharia supremacist ideology to influential jihadists who recruit young Muslims to do violence in the name of that ideology to the terrorist attacks those recruits commit. That is the matrix of how it works. The straight line is patent and has been proved in many criminal prosecutions. But if if examining it, 
can be made taboo, off limits, to be censored, then Sharia supremacists have a leg up when exploiting modes of persuasion other than force, i.e. the media, academia, lawsuits, and shaming to promote their ideology and to influence government officials. After all these years, it should be clear by now that Americans are not generally biased against Muslims as a class. There will always be pockets of bias against virtually every group, but Muslims are successfully integrated into American society. Americans have made enormous sacrifices for Muslim societies overseas. Almost every time we've gone to war in most of our lifetimes, at least since uh, at least since Reagan was president, it has been on behalf of Muslims, and we have striven to avoid tarring all Muslims with the horrific acts of violence committed against our society by people engaging in that violence in the name of Islam. What Americans are biased against, with eminently good reasons, reasoning, is Sharia supremacism, a systemically discriminatory and misogynist ideology that is antithetical to our constitutional Republic. When the House of Representatives champions the fight against Islamophobia, it is using the Muslim Brotherhood's playbook. Um, just this year, yes, yes, I have it. We got, I shouldn't say this year, it's, it's the hate crime index, the hate crime reports from the FBI. They are, come out annually and they always report on the previous year, as most government uh, studies do. They report on the previous year when they're most current. So in 2021, we got the hate crimes data uh, that was crunched uh, uh, and 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 reported throughout the year before 2020. And just to give you an example, it's 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 obviously each and every one awful, but anti-Muslim bias in this country constitutes three uh, percent. Anti-Muslim bias. Uh, constitutes not 3%. I overstated it. I am sorry. Anti-Muslim, anti-Islamic violence in this country constitutes 1% of the bias hate crimes in this country. To give you a concept of what that means, compare it to anti-white bias, which is 11%, anti-Jewish bias, which is 8%, anti-gay bias, which is 8%, uh, anti-Asian bias, which is 3%. Who talks about this stuff? There's three times more anti-Asian bias and eight times more anti-Semitic violence in this country per the Department of Justice than there is anti-Muslim bias. Of course, we want all the numbers to go down. We don't want any of those numbers to go up. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting, while having the lowest category of hate crimes committed against them, this is this is this is the group that has the loudest voice on it. And isn't it equally interesting that when there was an effort to condemn anti-Semitism in the House of Representatives because of Ilan Omar's statements, it didn't work. It didn't go through. They had to put it in every other single group. Isn't that interesting? Though it's eight times more prevalent than anti-Muslim bias. But today or well yesterday, but yesterday the House of Representatives could summon its moral, uh, its, its, its moral superiority and engage in a piece of legislation specific to combating Islamophobia. If it were to become law, it would include a czar of Islamophobia. 
in the White House, or at least in the executive office. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I told you I had good news on the language wars, and I, I didn't get to it. Let me get to it now. Uh, thank, thanks to Steve Hayward over at the Powerline blog. As we have seen, the left is in a linguistic crisis. Yes, it's changing the meanings of all kinds of words. Uh, Islamophobia was a pretty good one as an example. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, they have totally uh, stolen and redefined what it means to be a racist. But amongst, amongst the, the, the neologisms we've had to wrestle with, we have Latinx and BIPOC, BIPOC. And what's interesting about these is they're not really acceptable to the people they're meant to describe. Um, Hispanics in the real world hate the faculty room term Latinx, Hayward writes, and you can sense that the left is trying to figure out how to abandon the term, abandon that term with a minimum of embarrassment. But there's more. BIPOC, BIPOC, or BIPOC, the term of art that has been around for a while but really took off last year, is now in trouble. It stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. BIPOC is Black Indigenous People of Color. But from the beginning, there had been problems with that acronym. Um, according to Vox, about a year ago, and Vox is a, is a, is a liberal left outfit, uh, they had a story that quotes Adrian Dixon, uh, a professor of critical race theory at the University of Illinois, saying, quote, I think it's an earnest attempt to be inclusive. This is, that is, this attempt to be inclusive of the histories of oppression and that there's a desire to not create a hierarchy or to stratify. But she adds the political solidarity created by a term like BIPOC can also come with a loss. She says, people want to be named and recognized, not as part of an amalgam. She argues that when well-meaning white progressives adopt terms like BIPOC or BIPOC indiscriminately, they end up erasing the differences. They can also end up projecting U.S.-centric ideas of race into racial conversations in other countries where groups are constructed completely differently. What I'm worried about, one professor says, with BIPOC is that U.S. nationalist logics are informing some of the ways that a label like that gets taken up, which then amalgamates all the millions and millions of people who fit into that person of color category. And then we end up not being able to understand all the unique relationships among these populations. The whole article gets... Even more absurd if you do decide to read it, and there are links up over at Powerline. The Toronto Star in Canada has a race and gender columnist, believe it or not. They have a race and gender columnist. So uh, theoretically, everyone who's been writing about race and gender issues has been writing without the right credentials because they weren't race and gender columnists and paid and titled as such. But they now are recommending, the race and gender columnist at the Toronto Star is now recommending getting rid of BIPOC, writing, As with POC or person of color, BIPOC got swallowed up 
quickly and lost nuance and got spat, spat out at a, as a racial identifier, meaning not white. They go on. Colonized lands that grapple with human rights face a perpetual puzzle. What to name the other without saying the other? <laughs> it has led to a longstanding tension on this continent, a tension between a racial identity and a political identity. Still quoting. A tension between the labels white people want to apply versus how people want to identify themselves. Words matter, and they are tricky. They swim in the sociological waters around them, meaning one thing at one point in time and something else the next, according to this article. Those sociological realities have now claimed the term BIPOC like they do other racial designations that are rooted not just in history, but prejudice. It's true that some people are simply anxious to keep up with the terminology to signal support for anti Racism, But when they do so without paying attention to the nuance of those terms and flatten our identities and conflate the unique struggles of different groups, they replicate the problem the terminology is trying to eradicate. Bye-bye, B-I-P-O-C, the columnist concludes. As Steve Hayward puts it, it seems to me that progressives ought to be the most physically fit people in America since they spend so much time on their linguistic treadmill. Well put, Steve. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. If I can uh, just stay with the language thing for a moment, I would like to. Um, it's another thing that we should have learned a long, 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 long time ago. Um, it's not as if there's really anything new under the sun in in public policy any more than there is... In language, except for those who invent it, George Orwell did this before we were born, most of us, in his essay on politics in the English language. He said it is clear, he wrote that it is clear the decline of language must ultimately have a political and economic set of causes. It is not due simply to the bad influence of this or that individual writer, but an effect can become a cause reinforcing the original cause and producing the same effect in an intensified form indefinitely. A man may take to drink, he writes, because he feels himself to be a failure and then fall all the more completely because he drinks with every increasing failure. It is rather the same thing that is happening to the English language. It becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish and the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. He goes on to write about how you know you're in the grip of the politicized use of language when you deal with political officials who engage in orthodoxy of speech. Orthodoxy of what other of whatever color he writes seems to demand a lifeless, imitative style. The political dialects to be found in pamphlets, leading articles, manifestos, white papers, and the speeches of assistant secretaries and secretaries, of course, vary, but they are all alike in that one almost never finds in them fresh, vivid, homemade turns of speech. A speaker who uses the kind of phraseology you're used to 
He didn't use the word woke, but he might as well have. I'll use it here. I'll insert it. A speaker who uses the kind of phraseology of wokeness has gone some distance towards turning himself into a machine. The appropriate noises come out of the larynx, but the brain is not involved as it would be if choosing words for him or her self. If the speech he is making is one that he is accustomed to make over and over again, he may be almost unconscious of what he's saying. Is this not, is this robotic, almost F7 macro these people push? Is it not illustrative of the kinds of things you hear from our leaders today, particularly on the left, when Kamala Harris speaks, even when Joe Biden speaks? Uh, They are all, aren't they all using words that were not here 10 years ago, but words that must be used, it seems like, have to be sprinkled into the speeches, implicit bias, uh, white white fragility, social justice, equity, uh, anti-racism. Did I say, uh, no, I didn't say white supremacy. I said white fragility, uh, social and emotional learning. It's implicit bias. Oh, my gosh. That's the one that's like the dog whistle. It's 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 so prevalent. You can't see it. Right. Um, Is this not a great description and an illustration of of what you hear from the Kamala Harris's and the Ilan Omar's and the Joe Biden's all alike? They're all reading from a new script with new words that are meant to suffuse the rest of the culture to talk about uh, where they are in the political spectrum and in the social justice movement with the progressives, right? There are, and, and, and there is something about it that is wooden. There is something about it that is mechanical. There is something about it that doesn't quite make sense. You read these speeches, and it's as if they all have the same speech writer. They don't, and none of them really write their own speeches. When you're at that level... I'll tell you how it works if you're not aware. Maybe you are. I don't know. I've just been in this business a long time. But all, all these elected officials and even a lot of candidates have speechwriters because, as Peggy Noonan, one of the great speechwriters of our age, once put it, you don't want the political leader or the public official spending time on writing speeches. You want them spending time doing their job. Anyway, they have these theoretically skilled speechwriters. It does take some skill to write a speech. They give it to their superior. Sometimes their superior is the public office holder or the or the public official. The public official reads it, makes his or her own edits and subtractions and additions, and then it either goes back or they're good to go. That's how it usually works. But if you listen to these people using all that same language and all that new same language, language that wasn't here a decade ago, you, you almost wonder if they all have the same speechwriter, and they don't. They don't. But most of their speechwriters are the people that we said would enter the real world once they left college and become normalized. And we were wrong about. You've heard me on this before. We were wrong about that. You can't drench. Uh, you can't drench a student in uh, 12 or 16 years of education uh, from socialism, from socialists. You can't drench a child for 12 to 14 uh, or 16 years in socialist doctrine and language and expect them to come out capitalist and pro-American, not the majority anyway. And that's why, you know, something like 80 percent of our college graduates 
and high school graduates uh, have an affinity towards uh, not only the neologisms, but these doctrines that we thought we put to bed at the end of World War II or at least the end of the Berlin Wall, only to find that they were alive and well in uh, two or three precincts, one of them Cuba, the other one China, and the third one the American Academy. Then we discovered the fourth thing, which is what the fight in Virginia was so much about, particularly Loudoun County, not just the American Academy, but the American elementary and secondary schools as well. That's why I say 12 to 16 years of drenching them in socialist neologism and ideology. How do you do that and expect them to come up? That, so they're not all the same speechwriter. They're just all reading and playing their instruments from the same sheet of music. The good news about it is we do have the wherewithal to turn back on it. And it looks like already some of it might be taking care of itself. But God, please, we really, <laughs> we really need to say faster, please, to all of it. I, I love that line, Cinematographer's Party. I'm fascinated by Paul Simon's lyrics. I saw an interview once. What, what's a cinematographer's party? Have you ever been to a cinematographer's party? No. He said I just needed seven syllables. Okay. Uh, let me close here. If there's a theme that you may be picking up in some of the stuff we've been doing lately, it's the idea that every, every problem we're facing was preventable and avoidable based on wisdom that had been discarded by the modern currents, wisdom that isn't that far back. I mean, it goes to the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s. That's, that's not so far back, but it's been discarded. Some of that wisdom, I, I just think, when it comes to education, language, and our youth, uh, was best put by C.S. Lewis. It's one, really one of my favorite passages from his aptly titled book, Abolition of Man, most educators have honestly misunderstood the pressing educational need of the moment, he wrote back then. They see the world around them swayed by emotional propaganda. They have learned from tradition that youth can be sentimental, and they conclude that the best thing they can do is to fortify the minds of young people against emotion. My own experience as a teacher tells the opposite tale. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is thus not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. A hard heart he concludes, is no infallible protection against a soft head. Folks, thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Chris, thank you. Class, dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.